over 70% of the world's population lives in extreme poverty, while less than 1% possesses the vast amount of the wealth on the planet. In the past two years, we've seen violent race riots erupt across the border. We've uncovered horrific mass graves from residential schools in our own nation. We've seen suicide and overdose rates skyrocket due to increasing isolation. We have a bill that was passed recently in our government calling the biblical view of human sexuality a myth. And just this past week, an earthquake hit Afghanistan and killed over a thousand people. When you start to think about this stuff for too long, it becomes overwhelming, it becomes depressing. We get what some people call justice fatigue. And so we're left with this question, how does the church respond? How do we as Christians respond? Who can we turn to? Who do we turn to for justice, for these things that are completely out of our control? Do you have an answer to those questions? David in Psalm 17, uh, which we'll be looking at this morning, turns to the Lord. Psalm 17 is a desperate prayer for help as he's being surrounded by enemies who want to end his life. And while a lot of us here don't necessarily have people out there trying to kill us, I hope, we can all relate to this feeling that causes David to write this psalm, this prayer, this feeling, whether it's on a global or an individual scale, of fearing, feeling afraid and out of control. And while we may not have enemies in the same way that David did, there are certainly people who uh, hate the Bible and what it teaches and what we believe. And so Psalm 17 is the response, the human response, the Christian response to danger and difficulty and fear. And it's also the answer to the emptiness and loneliness and despair that we can feel. That can fill our hearts when we don't see a way out of whatever situation we're in. And so if you know what it feels like to be afraid or to feel like life is pointless and that we're all going uh, downhill. I hope that Psalm 17 brings you a lot of comfort this morning. In this psalm, which is a prayer, we see that the Lord will deliver those who call on him. The Lord will deliver those who call on him. And I'm going to read this whole psalm in one second, but before we get going, uh, just as a disclaimer, I'm going to be using the Lord and Yahweh those two words interchangeably as I preach this morning as a reminder, um, every time you see the word LORD in all caps in the Bible, um, that is a translation of God's covenant name that his people know him by. Uh, Ian Valancourt, who is one of my professors at school, um, writes this about his name. The name Yahweh is wrapped up in the covenant commitment that God has with his people. It's the personal name of God that reminds us of his personal commitment to his people's salvation. And so let's read Psalm 17, 
a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of, the, apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me, they close their hearts to pity, and with their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion, eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You'll fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children. And they, have and they leave their abundance to their infants. But as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Point one is that the Lord hears. David begins this desperate prayer um, with, a, with a cry, with a, a, like a desperate plea for God to help him, right? In verse one, hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer. He's in danger and he knows that the only one who can help him is God. And so he prays, asking for God to hear him. And then he elaborates further by saying that his lips are free of deceit. Or in other words, he's not lying when he's saying like, Lord, I need you. He needs God's help. And in verse 2, he just reaffirms that it is only God who can help him. From your presence, let my vindication come. It's evident from how David starts this prayer that he believes from the bottom of his heart that Yahweh hears him and is listening to him in his distress. He trusts that God hears him. And really, if the psalm ended right here in verse 2, this would already be enough to bring us extreme comfort in times of pain and danger and fear. Because God is listening to our problems, our cries for help as well. How, how good is it to just have someone listen to you, to listen to your fear, to your pain, to your struggles, to your anxieties? Even if they don't say a word back and even if they can't, fix your problem, it's so helpful and encouraging to just have someone who knows what you're going through. I think this is a huge reason why anxiety and depression rates are on the rise in parallel with loneliness. Uh, there was a study put out a few years ago um, 
where I think three out of five adults feel lonely all the time. It's not that just having someone listen to us solves our problems, but when we know that someone else knows what we're going through, it helps us to keep going. And so this is is comforting to us, verses 1 and 2, because the Lord hears you. He hears you when you pray. He hears when you cry out to him. He knows what you're going through. He's not too busy. He's not bored. He cares and he knows. And that's why we can call out to him when we're afraid. It's extremely comforting to know that God hears us. And as the church, we get to reflect that as we listen to one another, as we walk alongside one another. So I'd encourage you, listen to uh, the people that you know, your friends in the church, talk about their struggles and pain. Open up to your uh, CGs. This is one way how we can live up to how we've covenanted to bear one another's burdens and sorrows. Christians are the best equipped people, apart from God, to understand another Christian's pain and suffering. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, who was a pastor during World War II and the son of uh, a psychiatrist, says this. The most inexperienced psychologist or observer of human nature knows infinitely less of the human heart than the simplest Christian who lives beneath the cross of Jesus. The greatest psychological insight, ability, and experience can't grasp this one thing, what sin is. Worldly wisdom knows what distress and weakness and failure are, but it doesn't know the godlessness of man, and so it does not know that man is destroyed only by his sin and can be healed only by his forgiveness. Only the Christian knows this. In the presence of a psychiatrist, I can only be a sick man. In the presence of a Christian brother or sister, I can dare to be a sinner. Now, I'm not trying to disparage counseling or psychology or anything like that right now. There are absolutely times where those professions are extremely helpful for people. Uh, One of my favorite classes right now is being taught by a guy with a PhD in psychology, and so that's not the point here. The point is, you don't have to have a degree or a license to be able to walk alongside someone. That's why the church exists. That's why we get together. That's why we meet throughout the week together in groups to walk alongside each other so that we don't have to be alone. And so please use your small groups, your CGs, your friends in the church to lean on when life brings difficulty. We have to be here for one another. And when we listen to each other, when we are there for one another, we, emph- we emulate this key characteristic of God, that he hears us. In the next few verses, David begins to appeal to his own integrity, his own righteousness, really. And he invites God, Yahweh, to examine his heart, to look at his life, confident that he'll pass this test. And so verses 3 to 5, would you please look down at those again. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My, f- my steps have held fast 
to your paths. My feet have not slipped. So something that we need to be really careful of here as we read these is not to assume that when David's talking about uh, his righteousness, um, he's not, what he's not doing is saying that I'm a good guy, God, and so you owe me to deliver me from my enemies. He's not hinting at salvation by good works. He's not using his uh, good works as kind of leverage to get God to do something for him. He was well aware, uh, if, if you read the rest of the Psalms that he wrote, of, of his own sin, his own imperfections, and the gracious forgiveness of God. And so as we read these uh, few verses where he's talking about his own life, we have to remember that this psalm is a specific response to a problem in his life where he's being targeted by people who want to kill him. If you, if you look back at verse 1, you'll see right away he, he begins by saying, here a just cause. And so God, David is asking God to act justly in this scenario. Since he is a God that loves true justice, when he goes on to talk about his own righteousness, Again, it's not leverage. Uh, it's, it's, he's claiming innocence in this conflict. He's saying, these people are trying to kill me and I haven't done them any wrong. He's inviting God to examine his heart and his life, confident that he's not the aggressor in this scenario. And he does a similar thing uh, back in Psalm 7, uh, where he writes, if there's any wrong in my hands, if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground. David isn't appealing to his own righteousness, again, as leverage. It's not that. He's appealing to his innocence and asking that the Lord would do what is just. In this appeal, he's, he's showing that he trusts, trusts God to do what is right. He knows that at the end of the day, there are certain things out of our control, out of his control, but he knows that God will enact justice as he sees fit. It's not up to him, it's up to the Lord. And so we too, I think we should learn from this. Um, this is a really difficult thing to internalize and kind of live out. But we can trust that in the end, true justice will reign. Like I began by saying, there, there's so much injustice, so much wrong that goes on in the world that is out of our control those of you who are first responders see this kind of thing every single day at work. Injustice happens in every aspect of life. And that's the way that things work in a world where every single atom has been touched by sin. But the good news is that we don't have to take responsibility to make sure that justice happens in every area of life. Sometimes the bad guys win. The good news is that as we let this go, as we release this responsibility, we can trust that the Lord who loves justice will ensure that one day justice will happen. All injustice will be eradicated and there will be peace. And so does this mean that we sit back and don't do anything? We watch all these bad things happen and say, oh, it's not up to me, it's up to God? No, I don't think that's the answer we take. But as we seek justice actively, we can also walk humbly with our God, knowing that the responsibility for the outcome is ultimately in his hands. That's a very relieving thing to hold on to. And so after David 
invites this kind of moral examination by God. He reasserts that he's confident that he that God is just and that he will act. Read verse 6 to 9. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. Verse 7 is really a key verse in this psalm. If you're using the ESV translation like I am, you'll see at the bottom there's a footnote that says, or distinguish me by. And what that footnote does is it adds a layer to how we understand that phrase, wondrously show. So David is asking God to wondrously show his steadfast love. Every time you read the word steadfast, or the phrase steadfast love in the Bible, it's talking about this Hebrew word, hesed, uh, which you don't need to know Hebrew to read the Bible, but this, if you want to know one word, that's a pretty important one. It's a, rever- it's a word that refers specifically to the covenant love that God has for his people. The steadfast love that Yahweh has for his people is constant, it's unchanging, it's unconditional, and it's completely unique. Yahweh does not love other people in the same way that he loves his chosen people because he's covenanted with them. And so this is why the footnote translation or distinguish me by adds a bit of depth to this phrase. Like distinguish me by your steadfast love. Wondrously show me and my enemies, Lord, that your love is like no other. Show that you're a God who is like no other gods. Baal doesn't love his worshipers. Asherah doesn't love her priests. But you, Yahweh, your steadfast love is unique. Set me apart as one of your chosen people by your steadfast, covenant-based hesed for me. And so we, if you're a Christian in this room, you're living under a covenant as well. It's, we call it the new covenant. And as people living under this new covenant, we can trust that the Lord also loves us deeply with this same kind of love that he loved David with. And when we call on him to act, when we call on him and trust him to do what is just, it's not just an opportunity to trust him with our concerns, but it's also an opportunity for him to display his glorious character to a watching world by distinguishing us as different by his love for us. And so we can know that the Lord hears us and trusts that we will find refuge in his presence. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge. Moving on, uh, in verses 10 to 14, David's focus shifts gears a little bit. Uh, it's not between, it's not focused necessarily on the relationship between himself and the Lord, uh, but rather the Lord's relationship with David's enemies. So uh, read verses 10 to 12 with me. Speaking of these enemies, he says, They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He's like a lion eager to tear. As a young lion, 
lurking in ambush. And so the second point in this section is that the Lord subdues. He subdues evil. The lifestyle of, of these people is arrogant, it's violent, it's merciless. These people are trying to end his life. And David says they've closed their hearts to pity. They surround David at every turn, focused on bringing him down. They're not nice people. And all of these characteristics are the antithesis, the opposite of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where uh, he describes who is blessed. He says, blessed are the meek, not the arrogant. Blessed are the merciful, not those who have closed their hearts to pity. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the violent. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, not those who persecute the righteous. These people are living the opposite of what the Lord requires, and uh, Proverbs 6 also mentions a lot of these sins by name. Uh, there are six things that the Lord hates. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, hate, feet that make haste, to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. And so David knows that God hates sin, especially when it is attacking his people. And so because of that, appealing to his just character, David calls on Yahweh to act in verses 13 and 14. He says, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. And David knows what God has already said he would do to wickedness. And he's, uh, because of this confidence and trust in who God is, David might almost come across here like he's demanding something, like he's commanding God to arise and confront and subdue, but that's not exactly what's going on here. He, this isn't coming from a place of arrogance or some like superiority complex. Yahweh has promised to subdue evil. He promised to be David's deliverer and rescuer. And so David is not being demanding. It's not like he's telling God to do anything that he hasn't already said he would do. He's basing this request on what God has already promised on who he is. He is David's deliverer. You know, for us, it would be like the difference between asking that our government like, makes laws that are good for us versus asking the prime minister to mow our lawn. You know, one is just, one is good, one is right, one is expected, and the other is kind of just presumptuous. When we pray and ask God to act, we can be so much more confident in our requests when we base them in promises that he's made to us in the Bible. For example, we, we can ask God to give us lots of money so that we can afford a house in this insane housing market. We can do that, and there's nothing necessarily wrong about praying that. But he hasn't promised to give us enough money to be able to afford our dream home. However, Something he has promised to do is to make us wise people when we ask him for wisdom. And so we can ask him to give us wisdom. And he will say yes. In James 1.5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, 
Let them ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will, it will be given him. And so when David declares verses 13 and 14, arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul, he is absolutely certain that God will act because God will not let evil prevail. If you know the story of David's life, you will know that there were many times where he had people trying to kill him. Sometimes it seemed like they were winning, that they were the winners. David survived these attempts, but uh, there were so many times where he's on the run or in hiding with seemingly no way out. And I'm sure he prayed this prayer or ones like it many, many times. And only the situation got worse. And, and you too, I'm, I'm sure if you've lived long enough, you've gone through extreme difficulty and pain. Hopefully it's not people trying to make attempts on your life, but it's chronic pain, it's illness that won't go away. It's depression that grows and grows. It's childlessness, it's divorce. fear of the future. And if you're like me, you tend to pray prayers like Psalm 17 a lot harder when these things rise up in life. And so you're sitting here like listening to me talk about how God's promised to be a deliverer, but the pain's not going away. The grief comes back in waves stronger than it was. The fear gets more debilitating. I've asked God for relief to deliver me. I've prayed this psalm. I've prayed for him to deliver me. And nothing's changing. Why? And I don't have a specific answer for the why question. But I do know that one, the Lord hears you, he hears your pain, he hears your suffering, and he deeply cares. And I also know that someday the Lord will subdue all evil. He will deliver his people from all pain and suffering. And more importantly, he will deliver us from our greatest enemy once and for all when Jesus Christ returns in glory. That's the hope of the gospel. It's worth pausing here, I think, and, and asking ourselves if maybe we're on the other side, if we share any similarities with David's enemies. Am I arrogant? Am I violent, physically or otherwise? Am I, do I have a tendency to lose my temper? Do I lack mercy? Or do I trample over others to get my way? Do I manipulate my spouse and my kids with anger and intimidation? Do I care about the suffering of this world? 
of those in my church, of those in my life. Listen to me. If, if you fall into that camp, whatever you are chasing in life, whatever you think is so important will never satisfy you. It will always leave you empty and wanting more. It will never be enough. Look at verse 14 again. He says, from, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance, their infants. Are all of your goals based in this life? That's what David's talking about when he says, uh, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. All you have to look forward to will be over in, on, on an average, 80 years or less. Is your goal treasure? Is it climbing up the corporate ladder, making more and more money? Are you trying to build up your bank account so you can retire at 60 and coast for a couple of decades in retirement? Or is your goal to just have a, a nice kind of picturesque Instagram-worthy family with the perfect number of kids who never fight and who always look perfect in every family photo shoot? Anything that we chase in this life is fleeting. It's temporary. You can never grab it. You can never hold on to it. We work and we work and we chase and build up equity and finances and status and security all to just die and leave it else leave it to someone else who outlives us and even if you do make it it will never be as satisfying as you want it to be those things that we chase the thing that we want like money and, and a good family and friends they're not bad things all of us in this room myself included, absolutely, would love to never worry about money again, to have a, a great family that loves each other and is kind, that people look up to. The problem comes in when we think that these things will bring us lasting fulfillment. If, if you're doing that, then all you're doing is setting yourself up for failure because eventually, as good as these things are, they let us down. And so in verse 14, what David's doing here is he's pointing out how pointless it is to have our portion in this life, to look for satisfaction that lasts in this life. It will never bring lasting joy or peace. It may for a little while, but it always fades. It's bound to disappoint us. But verse 15 comes in. And in verse 15, David declares that the Lord satisfies. The Lord satisfies. Read verse 15 again. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Ultimate satisfaction comes from beholding the face of Yahweh, our God. 
despite the danger, despite the pain, despite the difficulty that David finds himself in, he says that by beholding the likeness, the face of the Lord, he will be satisfied. There are a lot of places in the Bible that talk about beholding the face or the glory or the presence of God. Um, We don't really use that word behold a lot anymore. Uh, I've never used it in normal conversation, I don't think. Um, But beholding is, is not just looking at something. Like you look at a speed sign as you pass it on the highway or you look for the shortest line at the grocery store. Beholding is so much more than this. And so, gentlemen, if you've ever been in a romantic relationship or uh, had a crush on someone, if you're married or dating or whatever, think about the early days of falling in love. Was there anything better than gazing into her perfect eyes, than stopping and staring at her as she laughs at one of your terrible jokes, or as her eyes get wide as she talks about something that she's excited about? In those moments, you're not just looking at her, you're beholding her. You're drinking in how gorgeous she is, how she makes you feel, how you want to skip the rest of the, take the rest of the day off work and spend all day with her. The rest of life's stresses and worries suddenly feel less important because she has everything you need. Beholding isn't just looking, it's experiencing and meditating and being with her. That is beholding. And so do you want to know how to find ultimate satisfaction? It's by beholding the face of Yahweh. Meditate on his character. Pause and reflect on how his love makes you feel. How good it is to be with him. True beholding brings complete and total fulfillment. And when we behold the Lord, that doesn't mean that all of our problems go away or that we can ignore them because they don't matter anymore. But it means that we can find true and lasting fulfillment and satisfaction despite everything else going on. Satisfaction is not the absence of difficulty It is the fullness of Christ filling our hearts. And so if you are a Christian, you are a recipient of this covenant hesed, this steadfast love of Yahweh. And you will one day be resurrected to new life physically where satisfaction that comes from being in the presence of the Lord will be fully realized. No lingering sin will separate you. No distraction, no distance, nothing. You will be with the Lord in the new heavens and new earth. You will be with him. There will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more weeping, no more anxiety, no more depression, no more injustice to worry about, no more financial worry, no more wondering what people think about us, Nothing will separate us from his presence. Nothing will take our attention off of him. The lion will lay down with the lamb. There will be complete and utter and filling peace. And 
when you awake, you will be satisfied with the likeness of the Lord. You will behold the likeness of your Savior, Jesus Christ. You will be with him in his presence. We will have been fully vindicated from sin. Like David says in verse 2, from your presence, let my vindication come. This has been, this always has been the end goal. The final step in the plan of redemption that Yahweh set in motion thousands of years ago by covenanting with Abraham. And in the meanwhile, we can hold fast to the hope that Yahweh will deliver those who call on him, if not from the physical dangers that we currently face, then certainly in the life we look forward to. And we will be satisfied completely. J.C. Ryle, who is a very wise dead guy with an awesome beard, says this about satisfaction, satisfaction in Jesus. I will look at Calvary and the crucifixion. I feel that he who spared not his only begotten son but delivered him up to die for me will surely with him give me all things that I really need. He that endured that pain for my soul will surely not withhold from me anything that is really good. He that has done greater things for me will doubtless do lesser things also. He that gave me his own blood to procure me a home will unquestionably supply me with all that is really profitable for me by the way. Ah, reader, there is no school for learning contentment. There is no school for learning contentment that can be compared with Calvary and the foot of the cross. If you're sitting here in this room, listening to me, and you can identify with feeling this kind of, what's the point? What, where, why do I feel unfulfilled? Maybe you've achieved your life goals and it doesn't feel as good as you thought it would. It may seem biased because I'm standing up here right now, but I am telling you from the bottom of my heart that the ultimate satisfaction that you can find is in Jesus Christ. You can ask the personal stories of tons of people in this room who will tell you the exact same thing. And if you are looking for that kind of satisfaction that David talks about in Psalm 15, that J.C. Ryle says in his kind of old English, All you need to do is believe that the Lord Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again. He died for your sin. He's alive right now, sitting at the right hand of God. All you need to do is believe that and commit to living your life for his glory. Repent from your sin and turn to Jesus. And satisfaction 
and fulfillment will enter your life in ways that I cannot put to words. There is no school for learning contentment that can be compared with Calvary and the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. So the Lord will deliver those who call upon him. The Lord hears your prayers. He hears your cries for help and relief. He is holding back sin and death and will someday completely and finally subdue the stain of sin in our lives and in this world. And he satisfies both now and more fully than we could ever imagine in the life we look forward to when we are resurrected to his presence. So please pray with me. Lord, it seems uh, more difficult to avoid every single day that the world we live in is, is broken, that it's not right. We look at the news and it's filled with basically just terrible things that have happened. Lord, all of us in this room, we go through difficulty, whether it's a battle with mental health or financial worries or a pressure at work or tension in our homes or uncertainty about the future. Lord, would you help us that as we feel afraid, as we're concerned, as, as that anxiety begins to grow in our lives, Lord, would you help us to turn to you? Would you remind us to turn to you and ask you for relief, for deliverance? Would you comfort us with the knowledge that you are listening to us and that you hear us, that you care? Lord, would you help us to live righteously, live good lives, not for the sake of being good people. But Lord, you have shown us this steadfast love in unimaginable ways. How else can we live but to live in a way that you've asked us? God, I pray for, for myself and for everyone in this room, Lord, that we would turn to you for satisfaction, that we would not spend our lives chasing things that will ultimately fade, that will ultimately disappoint us. But Lord, will we turn to you for ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment as we look forward to the day where we will be with you in your presence. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.